Uh, as you may uh, know, if you know me well, you know this is not my day job. Uh, my day job, Monday to Friday, I work for a big US multinational company called Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and I don't wear a tie there either, Barry, I'll have you know. Um, but there at Johnson & Johnson, I run a sales division. And my Monday to Friday is really about working out what makes a successful salesperson. I measure, I assess, we look at people, we train them, we try and build the most perfect sales force possible. And what we found as we do this, my, me and my management team, is we find that it's often attitude uh, what's in my salespeople's minds. It's the most incredible multiplier of their ability. The best salespeople are not necessarily the smartest or the best organised or the best at relationships, though all of those things, of course, help. Without fail, the best of the best in my company, we find, are those that have an amazing attitude to their business and to their customers. There is nothing they can't help their customer with. There's no sale that's impossible. Their mind is their biggest weapon as they go out to sell. And it's the ultimate key to their being incredibly effective salespeople. It's like that old saying, isn't it? It's like that it, it, mind over matter. It's what you believe can transform your ability about what you do. And athletes have known this for some time. The athletes have gone over to the Commonwealth Games this weekend. Most of them would have spent almost as much time training their mind about what it means to win as their body. And while performance psychology has really only been around for the last 30 years, what we're going to see today is that Paul knew this stuff thousands of years ago. He knew that the right mind was absolutely crucial for Christian people to overcome the worldly matters that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. So as we swing our attention uh, to Philippians chapter 4 this morning, we're going to see that God calls us as Christians to consciously shape our minds as we live in this world so that we too can live effective lives, lives that reflect our gratitude for the grace that God has showered upon us. But before we get there, I'm going to take a lesson from Catherine's lesson this morning. I'm not going to worry about this sermon. I'm going to pray first. And I'm going to ask you to help me pray as well. So just join me just for a moment. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Father, we ask that you'd help us to understand it this morning. Holy Spirit, be with me as I speak. Help me to speak clearly. Help all of us to understand your word more clearly and so be changed to be more like Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. So my plan this morning is actually to work through this passage. You'll see there are four discrete parts to this passage. We're going to work through each of them. And as we come to each piece, think about how that might apply to our lives here in Chatswood this morning, 2,000 years after this letter was written. So let's start by looking at verse 1. And you can see from verse 1 that we're jumping into Philippians in the middle of an argument because there is the word therefore. Therefore is a word that uh, links to something that's gone before to explain what comes next. So it's important, I think, just for a moment to remind ourselves where we are in this book of Philippians. And you recall that the Apostle Paul has written this letter to the Philippian church, the church that he founded probably about 20 years after Jesus died. Uh, it's a church that he really, really loves. He has a very strong bond with this church. And his big theme in this letter to his church is about living lives worthy of the kingdom of God. If you remember a few weeks back, if you were here, Jeff talked about chapter 1, verse 27, where they're called to citizenize. Remember that word we created, citizenize. They're to live as good citizens of God's kingdom. And what did that mean? That meant standing firm together. It meant standing united. It means taking on the attitude of Jesus. It means shining like stars in the dark skies, living lives differently. We saw all that through chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, it means not getting caught up in arguments about who has done more to get better into heaven, if you like, but realising that it's only through Jesus and it's only through his death on the cross that we get anywhere near heaven that we can be made righteous only through Jesus' death on the cross. We can only be made right with God through that. And so last week, 
Uh, if you were here last week, you remember from verses 12 to 19, what we saw was Paul telling his friends at Philippi about how he now approaches the righteousness promised to those who believe and follow Jesus. He forgets what is behind, he pushes on to what is ahead, and what he does, he presses on to serve Jesus more and more every day. And in the face of numerous challenges, he pushes ahead, confident in the knowledge that because of what Jesus did on the cross, his future is guaranteed. Okay, so all that's in the back of your mind. Let's get into therefore. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I long and I love, love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul is saying to the Philippians, he's saying to us this morning, Given the certainty that Jesus will take his people into heaven, his beloved Philippian church and the friends, they need to stand firm just like he does. Not be tempted by the world, not be distracted by the world, not be distracted by arguments about what people have done or what they haven't done. No, they need to trust in Jesus and they need to stand firm just like him because they too trust in Jesus. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Stand firm. The problem is in this Philippian church, it wasn't quite happening that way. Because as we turn to verse 2 and 3, what we see is two members of the church, two women, Euodia and Tintiki, are not getting on due to some disagreement. Look with me at verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Tintiki to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. These are two women who have stood firm as Christians at Paul's side, along with some others, Clement and some other people who he mentions here. They had their names in the book of life, so they're clearly Christian. It's not like it's a gospel issue. It's just that they're disagreeing with each other. They're not getting on. There's something that's dividing them. We don't know what the disagreement is, but they're not standing united in the attitude of humble Jesus that Paul calls them to in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul pleads with them, he begs them, bury your differences. And he asks a third member in the church, someone in our Bible called the Loyal Yoke Fellow. We don't know who this person was. But we, he asks them to help out, perhaps to uh, mediate between them, uh, but certainly, I think, to remind them of their obligation to think of the other as better than themselves. And, and though it's only a brief mention, I think it's worth thinking about what that means for us as a church, as a church family, because clearly God wants his church, and that includes us here at Chatsworth Presbyterian, this little body of believers here in Chatsworth this morning, he wants us to stand firm together. And so we, as a church family, need to choose. We actually need to choose to work hard to resolve any differences that we might have. Now, we have to be uh, realistic about that, don't we? I mean, we're different people. We're going to think different things. And Paul is not call calling us to be mindless drones who all think the same thing. However, what Philippians 4 is reminding us is that we need to make sure that our differences do not split us in such a way that we no longer stand united, not living the gospel we believe that has putting other people more important than ourselves. We need to ensure that as we worship here, as we celebrate God's goodness here, as we serve as God's family here, that we have Jesus' agenda at the forefront and not personal agendas. Now, I think we're pretty good at that here at Chatswood. I praise God for that. I thank God for that. But it's worth reminding ourselves of that important thing to do as Paul saw fit to remind his Philippian church. All right, let's return to the letter. Let's return to verse 4, where we can see that Paul now turns from this very personal note, this personal direction to his church, 
to giving two commands about how they should live in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. The first one is in verses 4 to 7. Verse 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. First and foremost, Paul wants his church to be joyful. wants his church to be joyful. And with that joy, he then wants them not to be anxious. He wants them to be prayerful. He wants them to be thankful. And he wants them to enjoy the great peace that comes with all of those things. Great peace. And Paul is reminding the Philippians, just like he has throughout this entire letter, that when you follow Jesus, your life is different. Not because because life has changed so much, but because you look at life differently because of what you know about what Jesus has achieved on the cross. Now, if that's not quite clear, if that's a um, a bit not obvious, and let me give a simplistic example, because I saw the power of how knowing can change things early this year when the family and I went up to the Gold Coast. And we went to Wet and Wild, something my boys had been dreaming about for a long time. I've got four boys. They all want to go to Wet and Wild. And after we graduated through the smaller rides during the early part of the day, by the late afternoon, the three eldest boys and I decided we would tackle the Black Hole, a 10-storey ride in absolute pitch darkness. Now, it's one of those rides where you go down in pairs. And so Ben and Tom, my two eldest, they were the first ones down. They were, I didn't even see them. They just sort of went. And so Jem and I were left standing at the top. And Jem got to the top and he looked down this pipe with water gushing down into blackness, just yawning terror. And he stood there and his enthusiasm kind of dissipated somewhat. I, I was fine, by the way. I was absolutely fine as I stood at the top of this ride. But the more, the more he looked, the less enthusiastic Jem became. And we graciously let a number of people go through in the line in front of us. And we stood there and thought about it for a while. And it wasn't until uh, Jem's two older brothers came up and said how awesome this ride was that we finally overcame that hesitation. And we sat down in the pipe and we stood there and the green light went on and we pulled ourselves forward and we threw ourselves into this darkness. And it was indeed entirely pitch black because we went around a curve that I had no idea was there. We then suddenly dipped down something that I didn't even know was happening and all of a sudden we were thrown all over the place. And it's amazing how loudly a five-year-old can scream in the dark tube. It really is. It, it, it echoes back and forth all the way up and down. But of course, eventually we made it down to the bottom and after Jem's heartbeat settled down to around about 300, um, he wanted to do it again. So he raced back up the stairs and the second time round, the screams were not so much of terror, there was a little bit of that, but more enjoyment. And then the third time we went up, he wanted to do it as fast as we possibly can. We wanted to race our brothers. And so, you know, in all that, the ride hadn't actually changed. You know, we still went into darkness. We still had no idea where the turns were. We still had no idea where the dips were. The ride hadn't changed at all. But what had changed was our knowledge that the ride wasn't actually going to kill us. Uh, It was actually quite fun and enjoyable. And with knowledge came a certain power, power to overcome that initial fear and hesitation and uh, sit back and enjoy the ride, so to speak. And Paul, if we turn back to our letter here, Paul urges us as Christian people to do exactly the same thing. Because for the Christian person, for the person who follows Jesus, for most of us here, there is a great joy that we have because a joy that comes from the knowledge and the certainty that those who trust in Jesus will spend eternity with him in heaven. The end game is absolutely clear. We know how it's all going to turn out. And this is how he can tell these friends in Philippi, who probably are being persecuted, probably aren't having a great time of it, but he can tell his friends in in Philippi, in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
I say it again, rejoice. Because Paul is causing, calling us to rejoice always in the deep and the abiding joy that comes from knowing who is in control and knowing where we are going. It's not a fake joy. It's not a fixed plastic smile. It is a joy so deep that in all circumstances it allows us to rejoice. And this joy has two implications we can see in verses 5 and 6. The first one's in verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all, Paul says. The Lord is near. So first, because God is near to us, because God is in control, the Christian can, if you like, relax into God's hand. We don't need to squabble. We don't need to struggle for power. We don't need to gain the upper hand. Rather, with the benefit of knowing that God has all things in his control, Christians can afford to be gentle people. Gentle people. That's the first implication. The second is in verse 6, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The great joy we have as Christian friends also means we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to stress. Now, we know from other Bible passages, such as the one that Lynn read us from Matthew, and we know from our own experience as well that Paul is not suggesting, he's not suggesting that things that might make us anxious simply disappear when we become a follower of Jesus. It doesn't all get rosy and purple and nice and wonderful when you become a Christian. Paul is not saying there's no need to be anxious about anything because everything that could make us anxious suddenly has disappeared when we follow Jesus. Not saying that. He's not saying the causes of stress disappear. Rather, he is saying, though, he is saying that our response to those stresses change when you trust in Jesus, when you know that God is in control of all things. For Paul, for the Philippians, for us, the response to things that might make us anxious should not be to stress or be worried or be consumed by the worldly matters that are thrown at us. Rather, our response is to pray, to bring these things before God, to give them over to him, to trust him, to look after them and to ask him to help us. And so you can see in verse 6 that we're to pray, and we're to pray with an attitude of thankfulness, not necessarily of, uh, in expectation of answered prayer, though that might be true, but certainly there's a thankfulness about the certainty of our future and also a thankfulness that not only is our future certain, but God's in control of our now as well. And that's something to be really thankful of no matter what we're asking for. And he goes on then to point out in verse 7 that when we're able to do that, we're going to pray and give those over to God and be thankful for those things, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, a lot of the things that uh, I get anxious about, that we get anxious about, we can't actually control. By handing it over to God who loves us and who is in totally in control, will lead to a deep and abiding peace. So let's talk about rejoicing. God's word to us this morning is that we need to rejoice and we need to rejoice always not just when we can count our blessings not just when things are nice and rosy and the sun is shining how's your rejoicing going on a cold and miserable day here in Chatswood 2,000 years after the Philippian church got this letter how's your rejoicing going do people notice a difference in you because you know who's in control are you seen as gentle are you seen as peaceful or are you maybe just as anxious as anybody else, tied down by life's difficulties? Well, if so, friends, let me encourage you that God is saying no more. No more. Don't fret and don't worry. Rather, remember what Jesus has done and trust and pray and be thankful. 
And we can do that because we know how this life and this world is going to turn out. And so we can look at it differently. We can rejoice, always. And for some of us this morning, that will be easy. Some of us are going through a really nice time and it's really nice to rejoice and thank God for his goodness. But for some of us, that'll be really hard. Some of you might be thinking that this morning, you know, rejoicing is absolutely impossible. In fact, you might be thinking that I have no idea what your life is going through at the moment. You might have no idea how hard your life is, no idea of your suffering, uh, that me asking you to rejoice is ridiculous and it might even be insulting. Well, let me make two responses to that. If that's what's in your mind, let me make two responses. First, I don't know how bad your life is. I don't, but I know that God does and I know that he cares deeply about you. And second, I'd say that I'm not asking you to rejoice, but I will gently point out that God is telling you in his word this morning to rejoice. He is telling you, Christian, because you have a knowledge that transforms even the worst pain, even the worst suffering, a knowledge that lays a foundation to endure anything that life might throw at us. This knowledge doesn't remove pain, it doesn't remove grief, it doesn't remove frustration, it doesn't remove suffering. These emotions are all really, really appropriate as we deal with the frustrations of life. God is not asking us, not asking you to abandon these feelings. However, however, the knowledge of God's power, God's sovereignty, gives us incredible power, the power to rejoice even as we grieve and the power to rejoice even as we suffer. You know, the guy Paul who writes this word, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was imprisoned, and yet he's the one saying rejoice. It's a power that he received because he knew what was ahead of him. It's the power that allowed the early Christians to sing hymns as they faced the lions in their certain death. It's the power that enabled Deb and Darwin Agahari last week to choose to sing, It is well with my soul, even as they mourn the loss of their long-awaited little boy. It's the power that allows us to rejoice in all circumstances. Friends, we have that knowledge. We have that power. We know what our ultimate destiny is when we follow Jesus. We can rejoice. We can rejoice always. But of course, sometimes that's hard to remember, isn't it? And that's why we need to remind ourselves and we need to train our minds to think about God rather than the things of this world which would tell us we should stress, we should worry, we should not rejoice. We need to train ourselves. And so with that, let's go to verses 8 and 9. And Paul now turns to the second command to his church. Remember, the first was rejoice. The second one is here in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. It follows that if uh, God is the solution to our anxieties, then we need to think less about those things that make us anxious and more about the God who's in control of those things. And rather than being consumed by the world, Paul wants the Philippians to fill their minds with things that help them trust God. He wants us to think about things that are true, that are noble, that are right, that are pure, that are lovely, that are admirable, that are excellent, that are worthy of praise. Paul wants us to think about things that reflect on God's goodness, his sovereignty, the certainty of his salvation, of things that will help us love him and love others more. And it's not just what we think, it's also what we do. And so Paul tells them in verse 9, this is what he does, what he taught them to do, what he wants them to put into practice as well. Think about good things 
put them into practice. And he closes this section by reminding them that when they do this, when they think about the right things and when they put them into practice, then the God of peace and the peace that comes from God will be with them. So what, do us, what does it mean for us today to think about these good things, these right things? It's a long list, isn't it? How are you going this morning? How are you going this week? How are you going this year at focusing your minds on what is true, noble, pure, excellent, lovely? How are you going at that? Well, if you're like me, as I've thought about this passage over the past few weeks, you know that Paul's words need, mean that we need to actually reprogram ourselves. We have to reprogram our minds to overcome the things that the world wants to fill it with. And I think there are positive ways and negative ways that we can do this. On the positive side, we need to do as Paul urges. We need to consciously think about things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely, admirable, excellent and worthy of praise. Easily said, how do we do that? Well, I think part of it is praying and asking God to help us. God's Holy Spirit will help us do that. But also there's a conscious and deliberate and consistent effort and discipline on our part to think the right way. We need to choose to think about these things. And again, it's easy to say choose. So what I'd like to do is propose some ways that might help us to reprogram our minds to think in alignment with what God wants us to think. Here are some suggestions. First one is spend time reading God's word. Spend time reading his Bible. And let me just say, from my own personal experience, my day is almost always different when I start out the day reading the God's word. I'm not sure what it is, uh, but it's too coincidental not to be true. When I think about God, when I think about his word, when I reflect on his character, for some reason, God's blessing, I'm less anxious. I'm less stressed. I know who's in control. And whatever the day throws at me, I know that God has got my interests at heart and what is good and true and noble and excellent plan for his world and for me is. It's a great thing to read God's word and remind ourselves of these things. And linked to that, of course, is prayer. You know, we're told to pray earlier in the passage. But when we pray, what are we doing? We're speaking to God. We're thinking about God. Praying frequently helps us focus our mind on the God who's in control, who asks us to bring all things to him. Now, hopefully you're prayerful. Uh, It's a good thing to pray. It's a great privilege we have. I, I find it particularly useful to pray when I'm trying to put into practice some things that I'm trying to do better, like Paul says in verse 9. For example, uh, I've started taking the practice of praying. When I, when I drive home from work, when I stop the car outside of home, I've taken the habit of praying just for 20 seconds that I might be a better dad and a better husband as I walk in the door. Because otherwise I'm, I'm drawn out, I'm emotional, I'm tired, I'm worn out. I don't want to face any of that. And I realise that's actually not the way I can walk in the house. So I have to pray and think about those things. Em will tell you it doesn't always work. But I tell you, my chances of doing that, being a better husband and a better father, are far greater when I do pray. I've thought about God and I've filled my mind with the right things as I walk in the door. It's a good thing to think about. And of course, uh, prayer is also helpful because we just ask God to help us think the right things. Okay, other things we can do. We can read Christian books. Now, I was a very late convert to reading Christian books, but you can read instructional books, things about theology, about what God, about ethics, about Christian living. You can read inspirational books about how... In- Christians in the past through their faith and through their belief in God and God helping them have done amazing things. These are really encouraging and good things to have in your head. Really inspire you to live a life of faith. They're good things. Uh, You can can listen to Christian music. Um, And when I was was younger and I'd say far more immature Christian, I thought Christian music was just that little bit too keen. 
I thought, you know, Christian music's a bit daggy. It's really not what I want to listen to. But thankfully, uh, I'm a bit wiser now. I've been encouraged by my wife in this regard. And I know that it's a smart thing to fill that part of my head that latches onto a song. You know that part of your brain that just latches onto a song and just plays it all day long? Better to have Christian music in your head than some other music that might be going on at the time. It helps me focus when I'm at the office. If I need some time to tune out, I'll listen to some Christian music. It helps me focus, help me realise who's in control. When you're driving in the car, it's far better, let me say, it's far better to listen to 103.2, however much you might cringe at that suggestion, than listening to the grill team or listening to Kyle and Jackie, who regularly get a little better above disgusting. Far better to have those things in your mind and that sort of music than otherwise. A final suggestion, you can hang out with Christian friends. The people um, we spend time with, of course, shape our thinking, don't they? And it's a good thing to spend time with people who think about God in the same way that you do, who think about a God who's totally in control, who rejoice that he's totally in control. And good on you for coming to church this morning on a cold day when daylight savings made it easy just to forget that maybe we shouldn't be here on time, but good on you, because I'm looking forward to having you shape my mind a little, little later this morning. Thank you for coming. But of course there's other things as well. There's Bible study, coming to Bible study every week is a great thing to do, catching up with uh, people one-on-one. I have a meeting, um, I have a lunch actually once a month with Aaron Tan from the 10.30 service when we remind ourselves of how great it is to be Christian men, to be following our Lord Jesus who died on the cross for us, who died so that we can go to heaven together. It's going to be fantastic. It's a great thing. As I walk back to the office after those lunches, I'm always encouraged. It's a great way to fill my head before the afternoon ahead. So by thinking about, by using those things, by thinking about positive things, we generally tend to squeeze out the negative thoughts, the things that don't fit on the list that Paul mentioned. But I know, uh, and I'm sure you do too, that negative things have a way of finding their way back into our heads. So I'm going to suggest that on the negative side, we need to block out, we need to strangle, we need to suffocate, we need to just get rid of any thoughts that are bad, unhelpful, untrue, repugnant, evil. We need to get rid of those things. And we, we need to be disciplined to not do things that take our minds down unhelpful paths. I mean, if, my, if your mind's anything like mine, I can start off with a really nice thought and sort of just go wandering through my brain patterns, end out over here and go, how the heck did I get over here in a place that's just not helpful? And I need to be disciplined enough to stop my thinking here and bring it back to where the good stuff is. Now, as I thought about some suggestions, I'm not sure there are any blanket rules for how to control those negative thoughts we sometimes have because we're all different. But... If you've been a Christian for a period of time, you will know, or at least you should know, what things get you into trouble. And so you need to avoid doing anything to trigger those trouble spots that might get you into difficult situations. So, again, some examples. Wrong people. Um, just we talked about before, the right people you can hang out with. Some people don't talk about things that are helpful. They talk about money all the time, they talk about material things, they talk about how important work is, they gossip, they uh, talk lustfully, they talk in an unhelpful way. Friends, if that's the friend, people you hang out with, you either need to do two things. You either need to do one, you need to be able to control your mind and stop it so they can't impact you, or you need to avoid them. It's not filling your minds with the right things. Get in touch with the right people or control your brains. Um, wrong literature, wrong things you can read. Let's take magazines, for example. And some things are clearly out of bounds. For blokes, obviously, Playboy is something that we cannot read. But I'm going to say that even so-called men's magazines or sports magazines that sell with women on the cover, that's out of bounds as well. In fact, for some men... For many men, for almost most men, I would suggest, even the big W women's underwear catalogue is not a good thing to have in your house. And if you see it, throw it straight in the bin. It's just not helping. You're not buying the underwear. You're not buying the girls. So what are you looking at it for? Right? So throw it out. But it might even be more subtle than that. Right? It might even be more subtle than that. Money magazine, if you read that regularly, that might be fueling your desire for more things. It might be causing you to covet. 
better house and garden might uh, be fueling your desire for an unnecessarily large and beautiful house. Vogue might lead you to hate the body that God has given you because you see these nice thin girls all picture perfect, touched up and looking great. New idea might fuel the gossip that lays inside of you. None of those things are pure or lovely or admirable or excellent or worthy of praise. And so we need to stop looking at those things that might lead us to think in a way contrary to God. TVs and movies. Again, you know what's unhelpful for you? I don't think we think enough about it, though. I don't think we make choices as we step at the movie theatre. Wall Street 2, for example, might be a great movie, might not be. But if it really, really causes you to cover it, to think, I'd just like it a little bit more, then it's not helpful for you. Don't watch it. And I don't think we plug in our brains enough as Christian people. I don't think we fill our minds with knowing where it's going to take us. Music's another easy example. Uh, I don't know if you know, I looked at, on iTunes for the top 10 songs in Australia at the moment. The top 10 songs include three songs called F.U., and I'm, F is not the letter there, by CeeLo Green, Take It Off by Keisha, and Teenage Dream by Katy Perry, and that's not a dream that I want my teenager to have, let me tell you. Um, that's what Australia's listening to. That's what the world is ha- having us listen to. And the tunes might be great, they might be catchy, but it's filling our, our minds with the wrong things, so we need to be very careful about what we listen to. And of course, uh, there's the internet as well, and I think this is the most... Uh, deadly thing, it's the easiest thing to corrupt our mind with, whatever your poison may be. And friends, if you can't control it, you need to turn it off. If you can't get someone to help you control it, if you can't get the software, if you can't use the internet wisely, you need to think about controlling it before it gets control of your mind. And parents, I think that's a great opportunity for us uh, to remember that it's our responsibility to train our children to think as well, just as much as it is our responsibility to train our children to behave, to ride a bike, to eat at the table. One of our responsibilities is to help them think so that they train their mind to think about noble things and pure things and lovely things and excellent things. And that's our job. We can't neglect that responsibility for us or for them. So those are some positive and negative things that we might be able to do. And with a list like this, it's, it's, it's likely that we could be seen as wowsers, can't we? And I think that's one of the reasons which I've never really fought really hard for this because I don't want to be seen as a wowser. I want to be cool and with it and up with the latest stuff. But what I've realised as I've thought about this passage over the last few weeks is that's not the game. It's not about being cool or with it. It's actually about me filling my mind with the thoughts of thought, the kinds of thoughts that God wants me to fill my mind with. Things that are pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy, noble. That's what it's about. I need to train my mind to think about God and his things so that I can properly reflect the gratitude that I have because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. Friends, it's a unique privilege to be followers of Jesus. As Christians, we have a knowledge about eternity and about how that changes absolutely everything. It means we can stand firm. It means we can stand united as God's people, sharing in that joy. It means that we can rejoice even in the face of hardship. And to do that, Paul reminds us today that we need to sharpen our minds. We need to prepare our minds and think about good and godly things that help us remember why we can rejoice Help us remember how we can rejoice. Help us remember what we can rejoice about. Let me pray. Pray for God's help to do that now. Dear Father, we thank you that you do save us through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Thank you that this fact changes the world, changes every single part of it. It allows us to stand firm no matter what comes. Father, it allows us to release our anxieties into into your loving hands and to let you have control of what comes. Father, you tell us in Philippians 4 that we are to bring all prayers and petitions to you. Father, as we reflect on this, 
We ask you would help us to do that and to rejoice more. Help us to realise what we have in Jesus. And Father, help us to think about right things, about things that are pure and excellent and worthy of praise and lovely and noble. Train our minds to think about you, to know your peace and to rejoice then even more in your son's name. Amen.